Welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Peter Kenny. And I'm Robin Houghton. And today the theme is camouflage and it's opposite, except we weren't quite sure what that was. Disclosure? Revelation, maybe? Whatever. Robin interviews Mary Jean Chan about her Costa award-winning collection, Flesh, and we'll be chatting about what we've been reading lately. Also, we've got news of something we'd like to try on Planet Poetry, and it involves you, our lovely listeners. But first of all, have you got a poem up your sleeve for us, Robin? I have. I was thinking about camouflage and, and something that comes up with the uh, interview in a moment without, without giving too many spoilers away is the subject of a uniform or wearing a, a uniform or wearing something the same as everyone else so that you're kind of, it kind of equals things out. So I've got a little poem by Alison McVitie. Actually, she might pronounce it Alison McVetty. I'm not sure. So apologies. And it's from her collection, Lighthouses. I don't know a great deal about Alison McVetty, but I know she won the National Poetry Competition back in 2011. And this collection, which is published by Smith Doorstop, came out in 2014. And this poem appealed to me because it's called White Jeans. And I could, I could relate to it on so many levels. White <laughs> Jeans. I knew I wanted a pair as soon as I saw them on my best friend in the communal changing room in CNA. Her mother saying they wouldn't last five minutes, but both of us knowing that jeans like that could last a lifetime of snogs, summers in St Ives, Saturday night fever, close encounters, an officer and a gentleman, Thin Lizzie at the Apollo, Bon Jovi at the NEC, Depeche Mode, OMD, three moves up country and back again, the kids, the splits, and yet more snogs, any number of parachute jumps, a wing walk, and not forgetting the breakdown crossing Snake Pass. <laughs> I wanted to be the kind of girl to wear them, just this side of safe, just that side of racy. I wanted them like I wanted nothing else. And my mother knew it too, that white jeans were just the start of it. That's a great little poem, isn't it? I really <laughs> like that. Did you have white jeans, Robin? Oh, yes. I don't know why you're using the past tense. I still got them. <laughs> oh, I see. Still hoping for the wing walk. <laughs> Enough of all that. Now we're going to hear Robin talking to Mary Jean Chan about her Costa award-winning collection, Flesh. Mary Jean Chan is the author of Flesh, published by Faber and Faber, and winner of the 2019 Costa Book Award for Poetry. Flesh was also shortlisted for a number of other international prizes, including the Seamus Heaney Centre First Collection Poetry Prize. Mary Jean's reviews have appeared in The Guardian, and in spring 2020, she served as guest co-editor alongside Will Harris at The Poetry Review. Born and raised in Hong Kong, she's currently Senior Lecturer in Creative Writing at Oxford Brookes University. Mary Jean Chan, hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. 
First of all, can we talk about the title of your collection? For anyone who hasn't seen it, Flesh is spelt F-L-E accent C-H-E. But it sounds a lot like F-L-E-S-H. And I don't think that's coincidental, is it? No, indeed. Um, I intended that sort of cross-linguistic pun, I suppose. So the French word flesh means arrow, but in the way I use it in the book, it denotes a fencing technique. Um, I used to be an epaist um, for about a decade. I fenced, you know, in high school, represented Hong Kong briefly. Uh, and then when I went to the U.S. for my undergraduate studies, I practiced fencing there as well. And so I think when it came to putting the book together, I was sort of interested in this idea of conflict, obviously, uh, inner conflict and outer conflict with the world uh, as a queer person, as a person of color. Um, obviously, there are a lot of layers there. And I think also being a fencer means you wear a mask and you wear these protective garments and just this idea of being camouflaged almost and clothed to protect yourself from the world also necessitates a kind of, you know, defensiveness. And I think um, I was trying to get at these layers through that word flesh, which is actually an aggressive fencing attack. So you run at your opponent at high speed to try to surprise them. So I also quite like the flamboyance of that word. Oh, I see. So flesh is the is when you kind of charge at your opponent, as it were. It's kind exactly. of exactly that's interesting. I I didn't realize that. And of course, the book is structured so that each section uh, comes under a, one of these fencing terms, doesn't it? Finishing mm -hmm. in the core, a core, or the, the the body. Presumably, is that like I don't know what does that sounds like wrestling that bit. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny. So um, parry and riposte obviously is a bit more kind of used as a technique. Specifically, parry is when you're defending yourself, and riposte is when you counterattack. Uh, the koha core is just a word I came across when I was looking up these fencing terms, and it means body to body, and that actually happens when two fences collide. So it's actually not sort of an ideal outcome. But often I I think about that collision, what that means. Obviously, there's yeah pain potentially there's conflict but then something might come out of it some kind of realization as well so I'm using it metaphorically there I love the way the whole this whole fencing extended metaphor really kind of I feel like I'm unpicking it as I go through the collection you mentioned the fact that when you're fencing you're wearing your face is covered you're in a, a uniform mm. and we start the book with the school uniform idea when you're when you're a child and the whole idea of dress comes up a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Let's start with a poem, shall we? Yeah, that sounds great. Maybe I will read the poem that you've mentioned, which is to do with the school uniform. Dress. The same uniform for 12 years. A white skirt, blue collar, blue belt, blue hem. A dark, no-nonsense kind of blue. White as snowfall in Eden. You washed it every single day made sure you ate in small bites, always wore an extra pad so none of the blood could seep through. You began wearing that dress at the age of six, your skin haunted by the British flag, so you could be Chinese with English characteristics. Each time you wore it, you shut your body up. Some girls wore theirs short, discolored, tight. Head girl, you reported them to the office of the headmistress for inappropriate behavior, kept your dress at just the right length. Most mornings, you see the face of a boy in the mirror. You expect to fall in love with him. Meanwhile, your fingers brush the wrists of another girl as you jostle into the assembly hall, and you understand that sin was never meant to be easy, only sweet. 
What memory might light up the pond you sat beside in dreams, eyeing so much depth it would be years before you dared? What curvature of tongue might you taste as if another's breath were a blessing? One night, you find yourself kneeling beside the pond. You dream. A voice says, hell is not other people. You slip into the blue water, stripped of the glowing dress you wore for thousands of days. There's that real sense of passing on to a new era in your life or being ready to. So dress, so immediately we're into into this idea of what you wear is part of your identity. And you mentioned you look at, you know, you look in a mirror and you see a boy. Mm-hmm. This idea of perhaps your parents or your mother wanting a boy mm-hmm. and being accused of looking like a boy at some mm-hmm. point. That comes through. The relationship with your mother is so poignant through this book. Mm. You say at the beginning, right at the beginning, you know, this is a book of love poems. Yeah. And there are some moments, aren't there, where the real pain is very raw, this relationship you're trying to work out with her. Yeah. Would you say it's as much about your mother as about you, this book, or or more about her? Yeah, I think it definitely was a book that I wrote with my mother in mind, you know, some in some ways, perhaps not even my real mother, but this internalized mother figure, you know, the expectations, the idea of having failed as a child to live up to those expectations um, you know, you mentioned the the uniform and the idea of gender, and and obviously in, in Chinese society, at least uh, there are some lingering sort of ideas of you know uh, I wanted to be the perfect uh, grandson. My grandmother, in particular, wanted a grandson, and my mother was accused of failing to provide that. You know, so I think there's a kind of intergenerational pain there. My my mom obviously is is delighted to have a daughter, but when that expectation is not fulfilled, you know, for her, then then she feels that pain and obviously it's passed on to the to the next generation um and and also i suppose this idea of fencing as well being almost quite gender neutral because once you've donned your mask and uniform you can't really tell who's under that uh gear and i really enjoyed that it was a freeing space it was a space where i could explore the ambiguities of of you know growing up as as a teenager and realizing, especially in the dueling, there was quite a lot of, you know, in Shakespeare, especially homoeroticism that I was alluding to in Twelfth Night, which is my favorite play, um, you know, seeing Cesario dressed up and realizing that obviously she's Viola, but she's now Cesario, like what's going on? Um, all of that was very freeing for me in a, an environment that felt very restrictive and binary. I love this idea of, you know, being, uh, being in uniform, freeing you up. It's one of those arguments that comes out occasionally when people talk about school uniform, you know, mm-hmm. putting everybody in the same uniform, surely that's somehow that's a violation of their rights and, mm-hmm. you know, people should be a bit free to express themselves. But actually there is something safe about all wearing the same thing, isn't it? You haven't got that choice to make. You're all kind of the same. Yeah. I imagine in a fencing outfit, you're even more kind of in a safe space. In fact, you've got a you've got a couple of poems called Safe Space, haven't you? I thought it was very interesting. The first Safe Space is a wardrobe, you know, hiding in a wardrobe. And then the second one is the bathroom where you can lock the door. And then the third one is in the arms of your lover. And it was just such a lovely kind of arc Mm. through the collection. Yeah. And just to say, I suppose you mentioned the first uh, Safe Space poem almost being a slightly, I think for my my own um, plan really in the book, it was a bit of an ironic 
kind of safe space poem because you know the idea of you know being in the closet is obviously when you're still haven't come out yet but ironically <laughs> that feels like the safest space to be in yeah because you haven't taken that leap yet and you've still kind of not rocked the boat and and there's still maybe room for you to never come up you can just sort of stay in there and and feel safe on a certain level but obviously that's untenable you can't stay in there forever and so that was the arc you mentioned that eventually one does have to come out into the open yeah, so yeah um i'll actually read the second safe space poem because i think it sort of uh, alludes to our times as well and i wrote it back in you know 2017 not realizing that it also in some ways is a sars poem uh, because i lived through sars in hong kong in 2003 right so this poem touches on that as well Safe space. Wash your hands. Rub soap into foam into lost hands. Focus on the running tap. The way your hands momentarily disappear and you feel safe again. The bathroom is a place you can always rely on in whatever country. Containing a door you are allowed to lock. Lock the door, even though the flat is empty and there are no mouths no doors that let the wild things through. Wild love, wild beauty, wild hurt, wild fear. All those beasts and your inner voice whispering. These are the options. Fight, flight or freeze. The bathroom, it's a, it's a loaded place, isn't it? Liminal space in a way. Thank you. Mm. It is a liminal Perhaps. place. Perhaps. There's mm. something about it. The other field of combat that seems to come up again and again is um, around food and meal Mm. times. And towards the end, you've got uh, references to tea ceremony. Mm. Is that another kind of metaphor? Is that a a literal thing that meal times were the times when conflict seemed to be at the fore? Yeah, I think I I do write a lot about the increasingly I'm looking back and thinking that the dining table for me was, as you say, a kind of potential site of conflict because um Sarah Ahmed, he, she writes about this idea of uh, the table being a very straight space, um, you know, the, the table's straight lines and how you can't almost deviate from that because there are these expectations, especially in Chinese culture, of, you know, who gets to sit where and there's hierarchy embedded in that, you know, who gets to eat first. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in many ways, you know, one falls into these patterns because you grew up with those but the moment you start to define yourself as, as being different from those rules, then obviously uh, it's a potential side of conflict. But also, I think for me, it's a side of reconciliation as well um, in the poem in which I imagine a perfect coming out conversation with Fantasy Mother. I talk about how we all sit down and make a cake and, you know, we celebrate the fact that I am reborn as my mother's beloved. And, and that's completely made up. But for me, that was a a kind of wish fulfillment during a time when that wasn't possible. But funnily enough, I think sometimes poems precede your your life even. And, and in some ways that's happened in my real life and that reconciliation has happened. So I think I wrote it at a time when I did, couldn't imagine it happening uh, in my life, but now it's happened. So it's, it's nice to think back to that time and think actually things have changed a lot. A dream come true. Yes, indeed, <laughs> pretty much. Yes, exactly. There is a fair bit of that imagining yourself into your mother, isn't there, where you, you speak in her voice at various points. Mm. And uh, and that also seems to 
undergo a kind of transformation. And actually, there's a poem towards the centre of the book, which feels like the reenactment of a of a, of a grief curve, the five stages. Mm-hmm. We've got denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So the whole book seems to go through those stages, those grief stages. Is that, again, another sort of intentional thing that you had this sort of poem almost at the centre of the book, which seems to be a microcosm of that? Yeah, that's, I think, a really astute reading. Um, I, I definitely would agree. I think, you know, a lot of uh, queer people, we you know, we go through that phase of wanting acceptance, but obviously initially it's also difficult for us to accept ourselves. I think people who talk about pride also, um, the flip side of pride is shame. And I think a lot of queer people, you know, Richard Scott talks about that brilliantly in in Soho in his debut collection um, about queer shame. And I think that's the first stage, which is denial. You sort of almost don't want to accept that that's who you are. And so you go through this very rocky road of feeling angry and then you try to bargain with the world and then you fall into a pit of depression and obviously sometimes we skip certain stages but for me that um five stages of grief was actually it matched quite perfectly onto my experience of coming to terms with who I am and then you know helping others come to terms with who I am because you know I didn't want to lose these crucial familial relationships I hold very dear. Would you like to read another poem at this point? Yes uh, I think I'll read the title poem Flesh um, in some ways, that poem slightly mirrors the five stages in some in, in some form as well. So it's not another prose poem, and it has subtitles throughout. Flesh. History. At the age of 13, I wielded a blade because I had a firm grip. I was in love with Shakespeare, and the school team needed an epaist. When my mother flew to Linz to watch me go three, four down against a former champion, she gripped the railing until her marriage ring was folded into flesh. Strategy. You never duel against the same person, even if it is the same person. On the piste, once the blades are tilted upwards to signify respect, you recalibrate to thwart their every move. She was disarmed by my tears, a timeout to breathe through the yellowing bruise on my pale yellow skin. Footwork. Changing into school uniform felt like cross-dressing. I took my time, removing mask, then chest protector, lingering at the britches. The day I learned to lunge, I began to walk differently, saw distance as a kind of desire. Once, my blade's tip gently flicked her wrist. She said it was the perfect move. Parry riposte. My greatest weakness, the riposte. In the changing room, the girl I was about to duel said I smelled of bitter gourd. We were practicing the flesh. Inevitably, I collided with her, a blur of entangled blades. I glimpsed her wry expression, through our mask's steel mesh, her gleaming, smiling lips. Grip and point control. French or pistol grip. One offers stability, the other more room for surprise. Before I came out to the world, I asked myself, French or pistol grip? Now you say, you're a great lover. Thank years of hard work on point control how two fingers maneuver the blade's tip, a flurry 
of sickle moons. Something very sexy and yet very gentle and lovely about many of these poems, I think. And also the relationship with your mother, the way that it is clear that you are, are hurt by some of the things that she says or some of the things that happen, and yet you want to you want to reconcile. At the beginning of the book, when you say this is a book of love poems, and, and at the end you speak very warmly of your parents. Yeah, I think um, this is a book about relationships, you know, different types of relationships, but at the centre of it is the mother-child relationship. Um, my mother's a writer as well, so, you know, her influence on me has been, you know, more than just being my mother. She's also a creative person, and her love for language, albeit the Chinese language, has always, you know, left a mark on me. So I found it very difficult writing some of these more conflictual poems, but at the same time, I also wanted to make it very clear that there there is so much love between us, and that's never ebbed even in the darkest of times. And so, um, yes, I do find myself repeatedly returning to, you know, her and her life. I have eight poems in there that are more about her growing up during a tumultuous time um, and her coming to Hong Kong and learning to be a scriptwriter essentially in a foreign dialect and how difficult that must have been. But she ended up, you know, succeeding in that field and, you know, went on to do other creative things. But so I think, you know, my mother's that central figure in the book, really, who who that relationship is is pivotal, you know, to everything else that happens. Can I ask you a bit about form? Yes. Because this this interests me, and I, I know it interests a lot of poets. What is it that drives the form of the poem? Because in this book we have everything from, let's, let's say, traditional lyric poems. We have a lot of prose poems. We have unpunctuated. We have punctuated. We have uses of forward slashes and ampersands. and You, you mix it up a lot. Mm. What drives that? I think for me, it's a lot to do with space and and breathing space. I think there was a poet who once told me, I forgot who who actually specifically said this, but, um, you know, he said, oh, you must let the poem breathe, you know. And I remember the poem perhaps being in court trains. And then he said, actually, it's just too packed right now. The poem needs to breathe. And I realized that turns out couplets was the right way to go. Um, Other poems are even more fragmentary, you know, at the Castro, which is about, uh, the, it alludes to the Orlando shooting and that that scene of complete devastation. The poem didn't feel like it should be a complete poem on the page, and therefore there's a rift in the middle. You know, it's sort of split across uh, on the two sides, aligned on left and right, and then there's a gap in the middle, almost as if you know to visually represent the loss of of queer lives. And so for me, I think that that visual element is very important. And even though I'm not really an experimental poet per se, I, I'm still aware of the possibilities, let's say, um, when you when you write poetry, that you can actually try to use different forms to suit the poem. Yeah. And and what each poem is trying to say is different. So the form should be different as well. Hmm. Yes, I like that. I like that idea. We had Peter and I had this discussion on Planet Poetry recently about prose poems. We were talking specifically actually about Claudia Rankin, right. Citizen. Mm-hmm. And of course a lot of a lot of that is even further away from prose poetry you might just say it's kind of prose yes right but we had this kind of discussion on on the whole thing Mm. and I was sort of saying yeah you can have prose poems definitely but if I think about myself I try and write prose poems and um, I'm not convinced by them I can't convince myself I can write prose poetry but Mm. I I definitely think it exists Mm -hmm. but I'm just interested in the choices I've been to workshops where illustrious poets running the workshop has sort of said the poem knows what it wants to be and oh, right. <laughs> know what it wants to be and that's, so that is interesting it'd be nice to have a couple more poems from you 
Sure. Yeah. Maybe I could read the one called Wish. Wish. I would like to live like the trees. My lover often says, look up as she admires a canopy of green. Her tree-like behavior astounds me. If you looked within me now, you'd see that my languages are like roots gnarled in soil, one and indivisible, except the world divides me endlessly. Some days I dare not look at the trees. They are such hopeful creatures. If the legislators of our world looked to their trees for guidance, would they reconsider everything? Lately, I've been trying to write a poem that might birth a tree. A genuine acceptance of the self continues to elude me. I think that this was one of the latest poems that went into the book. So pretty much the whole thing had been written and then I had this tiny poem. And I think it was at that point where you know, the poem almost ex exceeds the book, but I felt like there was a place for it towards the end where there is this sense of, you know, transformation has happened and I've come out and there's been some reconciliation, but ironically, the, the poet still doesn't feel entirely at ease, you know, and so that's the kind of, perhaps that phase of, of almost having to accept that things have changed and that things have gotten better. But sometimes when your defensive posture has been, you know, so rooted almost, it's hard to suddenly actually feel safe and feel happy. And so I think that poem expresses that a little bit. And also, you know, I think I wanted to make a point specifically about language and and how often, especially, you know, poets of color are seen as one or the other or, you know, we're somehow caught in between things. Um, but I see myself as embodying both, you know, my Chinese language and my English language because I grew up with both of them. So it's it's not so much a division within me as as much as a kind of multiplicity. And so I wanted to make that point of, you know, all these divisions often are externally imposed rather than that that's how I feel about myself. Um, I feel whole and I want to feel whole. Um, so that's the kind of wish of the poem, I suppose. I wonder if we might just end on one of the poems towards the end. And I was thinking of tea ceremony is so lovely and it is yeah. right at the end when you're sort of when you've got to this point of reconciliation and it's all the things we've talked mm -hmm. about with your mother sure tea ceremony there are days when i pretend to understand my mother's grief as i coax her into sitting at the table for a tea ceremony so she might linger on the rush of green into glass how the scent of leaf dissolves both past and future in one gulp. We drink in a serene silence. My mother smiles a smile that breaks my breath into laughter. She is radiant now, lost in the kettle's repetitive chant, her gaze fixed on the dance of fingers between utensils. I love my mother's joy, her reprieve from the sorrows she adorns with designer clothing. Some nights I tell her, Go to bed, she says, I can't, can you stay? As a child, I dreaded her desperate need, my hand resting on her forehead, unable to let go. Even now, with Winnicott and Klein as bedside reading, I can only invite her to the table. Look, mother, your hands are beautiful. Look, our tea is ready.
that is really lovely thank you it's really a wonderful collection i i will go back to it i sense there's just uh, so many layers to it thank you yeah thanks so much for coming on pleasure yeah thank you for thinking of me So in that interview, I was really intrigued by the creative contradiction she has going because she talked when she was talking to you about the idea of being camouflaged, that, you know, when she was dressed up to be an epeist, that she felt, you know, liberated and, and free to be a sort of teenage girl expressing a kind of ambiguous sexuality and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. Or exploring her, her own self. And and I find this idea of the, the hiddenness and that hiding behind sort of uniforms. I think you made that point that she was kind of strangely in a uniform, but that was really freeing for her. But the poems are actually very revealing as well. So she's kind of hiding and yet revealing herself. And I find that despite this idea of being in disguise, she's actually extremely honest and very open. Yes, I, I think that's... That's absolutely true, that these poems are revealing and very intimate. She's writing in retrospect, I suppose, at the time she Mm. was going through this difficult time of her life where the the uniform and the disguise was important for her to allow herself to explore who she really was. I even got the sense that she was discovering things about herself as she wrote. Yeah, I I like the, um, the idea of so much of the book being couch in terms of dueling she had the two loving relationships one with her mother and one with her lover but they were discussed in the context of a kind of combat and yet the poems are incredibly tender and uh, loving this sort of formal context where where you know conflict can happen within the context of love often in bruising encounters with her uh, sword fighting opponents and also with her mother and so on As you say, it was a great formal structure. The fact that she happened to be an excellent epeist and was able to use that as the the overarching metaphor, uh, you could say, oh, well, that's that's kind of happenstance, as it were. But she crafts it in so well, in very subtle ways. And yes, the idea of the ongoing, the working through the the conflict, but being able to see it in terms of a very ordered and orderly sport mm. with its rituals and its understandings and and its behaviours, I thought was wonderful. I like the way that the um, she was very much talking about how much she admires her mother. In the, the context of the book, which is, you know, draws its context from sword fighting, how the actual book ends with pretty much with a tea ceremony a very formalized thing as well you know where people are offering each other tea you know rooted to history and observing the right practice yeah so so the ritual of the tea ceremony like a peace ritual Mm. as opposed to the ritual of the fencing which is a highly stylized ritualistic type of fighting yeah and i liked when you were talking about that arc of her uh, safe spaces poems that they were i really liked that going from you know, literally hiding in a closet 
to you know a bathroom to being in her lover's arms yeah yeah i really like how vulnerable she is despite it being couched in terms of encountering armed opposition but how unbelievably tender she is towards people and how honest she is all the way through it she was talking in the interview about failing to live up to expectations and that sort of intergenerational pain between her grandmother's expectation for her daughter to have a grandson and she wasn't that grandson yeah i I don't know it's that whole idea about what people should be versus what they really are yes i just liked the calmness with which she spoke as well just hearing her voice and the way she expressed herself really sort of dovetails with that calmness and honesty that's in the book i felt like i learned things from that conversation and and from reading the book and you get to the end of the book, as you say, with that, that arc of the safe space and you end up where she's in the arms of her lover. And I think I felt that also was lovely for the reader. As a reader, I got to the end of the book and I felt that I, I was well aware of the conflict and the pain and what had gone on. And yet at the end, I felt like I was in a safe space and I, mm. one doesn't always get to the end of a poetry collection and feel like you're being held in a, in a cocoon. And it felt a bit like that. I like also when you were asking her about the forms, and she was saying that essentially that you know every poem is different and it's got to find its own way of expressing itself and also she was talking about this giving the poem space but we were we've been talking off and on about prose poems but her prose poems I think you know without question in my mind anyway work really well as poems they just happen to look like prose there was never a moment of doubt in my mind that this is an entire book of poetry So a deserving winner of the Costa Book Awards for Poetry. Yeah, I think so. And I don't always feel that. Like you said, I think this is a book I'll return to. There's something kind of formally lovely about it, but the the formality doesn't overpower the humanity. It's not just a shape with stuff in it. It's it's, It's lovely poetry that happens to have taken a shape. some Audrey Lord, haven't you? Tell us about that. Yeah, I've been picked up one of those uh, penguin pocket-sized books for a pound, and it was called The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And it contains uh, five essays, including the one that gives the collection its title. A while ago, I realised that I didn't know anything about intersectionality and uh, asked a friend about where do I go to find out about this. One of the things she recommended was um, to read a bit of Audre Lorde. Yeah, what a little book it is. It's amazing uh, because the tone of it is just like really full of fiery, righteous anger. You know, you know, she's really taking on people. And um, the famous essay, you know, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Great title. Yeah, it was a speech that she gave, and it, and it was a, a furious rebuke to a New York University Institute for the Humanities Conference in 1978. Apparently, she was one of the speakers there, but they only included two women of colour as an afterthought. Straight away in the in the essay, she's like after them, and she says it's a particular academic arrogance to assume any discussion of feminist theory without examining our many differences. 
and without a significant input from poor women, black and third world women and lesbians. I want to just read this this key passage which contains the thing. It's only a paragraph. Mm, She says, those of us who stand outside the circle of this society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to stand alone, unpopular and sometimes reviled, and how to make common cause with those others identified as outside the structures in order to define and seek a world in which we can all flourish. It is learning how to make our differences and make them strengths, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Hmm. So uh, what she's saying is, in the context of that particular conference that she was at, was although it was all women, they were conforming to existing standards. And she's saying, you have to embrace your difference. And to exclude us just means that you're just playing by the same rules. And if we're going to change things, we have to play by new rules. What Audrey Lord was very early in suggesting was that you can't ignore these things when discussing, you know, your experience of life. This idea of intersectionality is really deep rooted. And like, you know, when we're talking about Mary Jean Chan's book, Flesh, Mm. that certainly can be read in the the context of intersectionality. You know, she's talking about her experience as somebody that speaks two languages. She talked about her queerness and about her age and all the rest of it, how all those things shape and inform the way she writes. So many other writers of her generation are informed by this notion of intersectionality. This friend um, recommended this other book, which I just started reading, called Intersectionality by Patricia Hill Collins and Surma Bilge. And it's published by Polity Books in the US. And they've got a definition of intersectionality in there that says, when it comes to social inequality, people's lives and the organisation of power in a given society are better understood by being shaped not by a single axis of social division, be it race or gender or class, but by many axes that work together and influence each other. Intersectionality is an analytic tool which gives people better access to the complexity of the world and of themselves. That's a sort of poised way of saying what Audrey Lord was saying, is that Audrey Lord was doing it on rocket fuel. <laughs> hmm. That made sense to me. I wasn't quite sure what it was before, so it's good to have that definition. One other um, Audrey Lord essay, of the five essays in there, I found two particularly interesting. And the second one was the uses of anger, women responding to racism, where she says, my response to racism is anger. I have lived with that anger, ignoring it, feeding upon it, learning to use it before it laid my visions to waste for most of my life. Once I did it in silence, afraid for the weight. My fear of anger taught me nothing. Your fear of anger will teach you nothing also. This whole thing about the essay is it kind of explores anger and how it plays out in society. And it sort of talks about using this anger as a 
a way of empowering yourself. Sounds very modern, doesn't it? Very modern and yeah, um, I mean, prescient. It, and, but a shame in a way that we're still learning these lessons now, really. Definitely. This far on, over 40 years. Yeah. I may have question marks about it as I learn more about it, but it, it's important to understand where people are coming from and from that kind of analysis of where they are in the world. Definitely. So I was going to talk just briefly about a collection that I first came across last year. So I was reviewing it for the Frogmore papers and it's by Hubert Moore called The Feeding Station. I'd never come across Hubert Moore before, but this is actually his 10th collection, I believe. Amazing how people can have 10 collections without having much of a high profile. Yes, we haven't heard of him, but maybe he's had a very good career but maybe he's just not someone we see in magazines or whatever right now, for whatever reason. Maybe he's suffering from the fact that he belongs to a category of poets who are now having to put up with not being ignored, perhaps in the way that they were once the people who got published. Yeah, we've we've had our five or six centuries. You guys can have it for another 10 years. That's right. You've got to sit back and let everyone else take the stage who've been underrepresented. So there you go. That's, that's, that's justice. But anyway... So Hubert Moore, so this book, The Feeding Station, and I started, I started reading it, I had no conception of his poetry, but I was so moved and taken with this. He used to work as a volunteer at the charity Freedom From Torture, and it says on the blurb at the back that this book is informed by that period of time when he spent time with people who had endured the most dreadful things, and That does come out through the poems, but it's very subtle. I found his poems, they're very spare, they're very thoughtful, understated, but very powerful. So I'd just like to read one short poem, and it's called Wash. After a boat goes past, its wash sets off across the calm grey silk toward you, frothy to be told. Story after story arches in. To be a coast or shore must be to let each wave ungulf its passionate say and then slip backward from you, down your rocks, translucent, listened to. That's beautifully understated, isn't it? It is, and I think it's just such a deceptively simple way of talking about how it must be to be a counsellor to be a listener to someone who has a horrific story to tell. They need to tell it and it needs to wash off you. You can't take it in. You have to just listen and let it come out. This idea of the stories needing to be told is a theme that runs through the collection. It's not only about this theme. There are so many poems in there that are about birds. It's called The Feeding Station, the idea of birds and I suppose the whole kind of trope of birds who are free as opposed to people who are absolutely not free runs through it as well. It's well recommended. Hmm, I'll have to look it out for that. That sounds great. Published by Shoestring Press, I ought to say. And now for something just as exciting. We're going to try something new. And inclusive. So, Peter, tell us what we're going to do. What we try to do with Planet Poetry is have a spirit of generosity and finding out about other people's work and promoting them. And we want to ask you to do the same sort of thing. So if you've encountered a 
collection or a poem that's just blown your mind or maybe a thorny issue, we want you to send us a sound file. Yeah, so just use your phone or whatever, um, no more than one minute. So you've got 60 seconds to either tell us about this great book or a poem that you've read recently that you've really enjoyed. We appreciate you probably haven't got time to read the whole poem, but uh, if if you want to quote some lines from it and say why you thought it was really good... Or if you'd like to tell us a thorny issue, get it off your chest, tell us about it, and then we can debate it. So no more than a minute, please, only because we don't know how many we're going to get. <laughs> you could send it to us as a sound file via wetransfer.com and you can send it to podcast at telltalepress.co.uk. I don't know about you, Peter, but my New Year's resolutions didn't go entirely to plan I only had I only had one resolution. It was supposed to last me the month of January and it was to carry on doing my yoga with Adrian. But it got to about day 20 and uh, I had a few mechanical issues, sadly. And oh, God. <laughs> so I had to give up. <laughs> Have you blown any any resolutions yet? Um, no, well, I've, I've kept to my usual resolutions of uh, spending January kind of feeling discontent and miserable. But now February's here, I, I feel already so much better i don't know why so i've um decided to control my eating in february because january is so miserable that you know it demands that you overindulge in snacks especially Mm. when you're locked down and there's nothing to do yeah yeah weirdly though i found that i've just been drinking less and less as this miserable year has gone on really because i've i've realized that what i really like doing is being with friends and having a few beers yeah and if you're just kind of slumped in front of the telly that just seems like no point really it's not quite the same is it but i'm sure that will be (laughs) i'll be back to my binge drinking ways one day this year with a new one we will meet again soon